And the church said? Amen. Amen. You know, I was just um, noticing as I was looking in the choir this morning, uh, there's, did you know Terry Gross was in the choir today? And some of you going, well, you know, who's Terry Gross? First of all, if you've been here more than two weeks and you don't know Terry Gross, you, <laughs> you'll figure it out pretty quickly. But uh, a week ago Thursday, she had a tumor removed from her brain, and she is in the choir worshiping the Lord Jesus today. My goodness. Wow. And there are others. I, as I looked across the choir, I just thought, oh, man, I know what they're facing and what they've got going on. And yet, you know what is so incredible and why I love coming to Bethesda on Sunday morning and gathering with God's people and being involved in corporate worship together? People that I know that are in life struggles, that are facing all kinds of stuff, still come and connect with other believers. And in their faith, they lift their hands, they lift their voices, and they want to bless the name of the Lord because they've learned it. In everything, give thanks. Thanks to him. Come on, let's bless the Lord again today. I love being with the body of Christ. I love being with other believers. It's, it's really, it's, it's, what I, it's what I live for. I love coming together in worship with, with you on Sunday, being with people that I know love Jesus and want to worship him. Your faith and your worship inspires me, and, and it's, it's what makes it so great to come together. Is Mrs. Lois Fry in the room today? Where is Mrs. Fry? All right. I want you to stand, Mrs. Fry, and I want to tell these folks what happened this week. I received word this week that Mrs. Lois Fry was honored for 20 years of faithful service to children at the Children's Courtyard in Hearst. And let's put this into perspective. Now, I have permission to say this, so don't think I'm saying something out of, out of turn here. Mrs. Fry is 90 years young. Now, well, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. She has served the children of the community of Hearst for 20 years. That means if you do the math, she started doing what she's doing when she was at age 70. Now, you all want to talk about being tired, worn out, and all that stuff. She started at age 70. She remained steadfast in her diligence even through the loss of her husband. How long has Harvey been gone? Two years? Okay, a year and a half ago, she stayed diligent in, in her work through all of that. And this week, put that photo up there for me, please. This week, they honored her by naming the building after Mrs. Fry. 90 years old. So today, Mrs. Fry, we give honor to whom honor is due. God bless you, my dear sister. Yes, 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 yes. How many of you hope you still got that much gas left in you when your strength and stuff to get up and get going and do something and bless other people and help other people, particularly children of our community? How wonderful that God has given her strength and given her grace and she has used that resource incredibly well to do something positive for others. However... That's not everybody's story. Not everybody makes it to 90 years of age and is still productive and doing good things for other people. And by the way, she shows no signs of stopping. 
Look how lovely she looks today and full of energy and life. How many know that there are people, though, who have started off incredibly well, but they ended by crashing and burning? Not everybody has the story that Mrs. Fry has. And sad to say, sometimes we see that even the, that story of people uh, not ending well, and she's not ending, not ending well, we see that sometimes with people in ministry. You've seen it happen right along with me. It happens to preachers. It happens to pastors. It happens to Christian music artists. And certainly like me, you've watched it happen to fellow Christians. Brothers and sisters with whom you've been in fellowship in the church often start off so well, but somewhere along the way, wrong choices were made, resources were not properly used, bad decisions were made, and their passion for Jesus seems to fade or diminish, and the journal of their journey does not end well. So I think we have to look at that, and we're going to go to the word of the Lord in just a moment to ask the question, how do we prevent that from happening? How do we keep from, from falling out of this thing of the Christian life? How do we keep that from being our story, from your story, or from my story? How do we finish well? There's examples in the Bible both ways. And For example, how does a guy like King David's counselor, Ahithophel, spend so much time with David, who's the man after God's own heart, and spent so much time with him, and yet he, he, he ends up hanging himself and leaving his wife a widow? Well, you could say that it begins to come into focus when you do the research to find out that Bathsheba, how many know who Bathsheba was? You know the story of David and Bathsheba. When that happened, it happens that Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. And this man developed such a deep-seated anger toward David for what he had done in the circumstance with Bathsheba. And it all ends with Ahithophel hanging by a rope because he could not let go of his bitter, deep resentment that he had in his heart. It does not end well for everybody. I wish I could say it did, but it doesn't. I had a friend in ministry contact me just a few weeks ago, an incredibly, incredibly gifted man. And he said, it was by text, he said, Dan, please pray for me that I don't throw in the towel. I thought, oh my goodness, of all people, I wouldn't have expected you to do that. But we never know what's going on in the heart of a man. We never know what's going on in the heart of a woman and how close they could be to not ending well. So the question is, how do we end well? How do I end well? For over four decades in ministry, four decades of giving my life to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, I certainly don't want to crash and burn. And I know you don't either. So let's turn to the word of the Lord this morning and go with me to 1 Kings chapter 3. Take your Bibles, please. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 3. And we're going to start with verse 3. And we're going to see if there's something for us here today as we look at the word of the Lord. Lord, give us your presence here today as you wonderfully have. And I need your help. Lord, I want to be able to communicate what you've placed in my heart, and I need your, your help to do that. So let me say it in a way that the ears that you are anointing today will hear it well. From my mouth to their ears, oh, Holy Spirit, do what you do so magnificently well. For we ask it in the name of Jesus, and everybody said. Looking at 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 3, and we're talking about the beginning of the reign of King Solomon. And here's what I want you to notice that at the beginning. Now, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David. I think that's a good start, don't you? He started off by loving the Lord. 
You might, want to understand, uh, might even want to underline that. That's how, that's how he started. It starts great. And in fact, a couple of verses later, because Solomon loves the Lord, God even appears to him and says, ask me whatever you want. How would you like to have God show up at your house this afternoon and say, ask me whatever you want? Raise your hand if you'd like that to happen. Me too. That's what happened to Solomon because he loved the Lord. And so God showed up and said, ask me whatever it is that you want and I will give it to you. And so we know what Solomon would ask for. He asked for wisdom, exactly. And literally, until Jesus comes, Solomon becomes the wisest man on the planet and in all of history until the coming of Jesus. So his beginning was good. But I want you to fast forward with me 30 years of a 40-year reign. And so here's how we're going to do this. Go with me from 1 Kings chapter 3 where you are right now. And we're going to flip over a few pages to 1 Kings chapter 11. We're going to flip around. So stay with me here with this. As we slide past these eight chapters, we're sliding past 30 years of the 40-year reign of King Solomon. We just span 30 years as you flipped over to chapter 11. And watch what happens with me now. Chapter 11 of 1 Kings starting with verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Besides Pharaoh's daughter, he married women from Moab, Ammon, Edom, Sidon, and from among the Hittites. The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them because they will turn your hearts to their gods. And yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. Well, further reading in the chapter will reveal to us that Solomon not only loved them, but his love for them turned into a situation where he literally took to himself 1,000 wives. (laughs) Whoa, 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 whoa. But does anybody see this as a disaster ready to happen? I confess to you that I had this thought. I'm just glad he's not part of Bethesda because our staff could not possibly keep up with all the marital counseling appointments. (laughs) But that's what happens here. When you read further in the narrative, you discover that the, the, the women truly did turn his heart away from God. And turn his heart to worship other gods exactly as, as they had been told by the Lord. That's why they were, he was told not to do that. And rather than being completely faithful to the Lord his God as his father David had been. And then it goes to the next step of the progression. And that is this. He starts building. You know, when your heart turns away from God. When somebody has convinced you to turn away from the one you love. And all of a sudden you're open. You're you're fair game for anything that can happen. So look what the Bible tells us happened. The next thing, he starts building in Jerusalem all these idols. All these idols to Moloch and Chemosh and Milcom and others start to be built. And I read that narrative and I go, how does this happen? How do you get wisdom from God when you ask him for it, he gives gives it to you. A man who loves God, we established that in chapter 3, to the point where 30 years later, he's building idols to other gods in Jerusalem and he's married a thousand women. I think we can safely assume something must have gone terribly wrong in the story. When you read those 30 years, it's an amazing story. 
He's, you know, what you'll find out is he's giving all this incredible wisdom. I'm talking about that space between chapter 3 and chapter 11 that we slid over. He's giving all this incredible wisdom to women who are fighting over a baby. And then, then we had the Queen of Sheba coming, wanting to talk with him. And she's looking at Solomon in chapters 9 and 10 and saying things to him like, you know, they haven't even told the half of the story of all of your wisdom. And she's saying, oh, blessed are the men who get to sit and eat with you every day and, and hear all of this amazing wisdom. How does it happen that someone starts off loving God and ends up building idols to other gods in Jerusalem? How do you end up going that long and blowing it so bad this way? And some people might simply excuse it by saying, well, he, you know, he had a thing for foreign women. Uh, that's, that was just it. To which I would probably say, that would be the result, but that's not the issue. That's not the foundation of the problem. So therefore, I think it's worth investigating, because I think there's something interesting we're going to see in the Word here, to dig a little deeper and see something about the choices that he made and see something about this story and see what lessons we might learn, learn from it. If you're following me this morning, you're right now in 1 Kings chapter 11, I want you to go backwards for just a few minutes and let's look at more closely how this might have happened. And our investigation this morning to answer this question, how could it happen, begins with horses. Now before we go any further, I want you to know that as a true naturalized Texan, I have a great appreciation for horses. I'm not saying I know as much about them as some of you, but I do know how to appreciate them. In fact, though it may not fit with your picture of me, whatever that is, my parents actually owned a horse when I was in high school, and I rode it, and I helped take care of it for a couple of years, and I have very, very fond memories of those days. It happened that the church my dad was pastoring at the time, there was a group of three or four men who, who seemed them, uh, deemed themselves as equestrian aficionados. And they had this nice facility, a horse barn, and right in a wonderful countryside area where we could ride our horse. And it was actually right where three states came together. Uh, it was right where South Dakota, Nebraska, and Iowa came together. You could literally stand on one spot. If, if you did it like this, you could be in three states at one time. And you could ride our horses out in this countryside area. And I used to clean the stall. Glorious experience it was. Just glorious. In fact, it was... That experience, which gives me a way to relate dynamically to one of Dr. Marty's favorite Proverbs. She loves the Proverbs uh, chapter 14, verse 4, which says, Where there are no oxen, the stable or the stall stays clean. <laughs> but obviously there's a leadership principle here. When you flip that verse around and say it the other way, it comes out something like this. When you do have oxen in the stall, when you do have horses in the stable, when you do have people in the church, there's stuff to clean up. You want a clean stall? Don't have anything living in it. That's the way that it works out. And the church said, but Back to our investigation of the situation with Solomon. See how horses were the beginning of his undoing. Here's the fact. He shouldn't have purchased horses. Back up to 1 Kings chapter 10. And let me read something to you. 1 Kings 10, starting at verse 26. Solomon built up a huge force of chariots and horses. 
He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horses. He stationed some of them in the chariot cities and some near him in Jerusalem. Now the king made silver as plentiful in Jerusalem as stone. And valuable cedar timber was as common as the sycamore fig trees that grow in the foothills of Judah. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Cilicia. The king's traders acquired them from Cilicia at the standard price. At that time, chariots from Egypt could be purchased for 600 pieces of silver and horses for 150 pieces of silver and, and were then exported to the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Aram. Now, to understand what's happened here, we're going to even go back a little further in just a moment. But we see now what he did. We must keep the question in our minds, how do horses turn into idols? This is a man who has seen the Lord, not once, but twice. I reference 1 Kings 9, if you question it. A man who the Bible tells us loves the Lord. A man who gets wisdom from God. But a man who, 30 years later, desecrates Jerusalem with a thousand wives and in building idols there. He shouldn't have purchased the horses. Go back with me 500 more years to see something that God spoke to Moses when they finally entered the land of Canaan. I'm going all the way back to Deuteronomy 17, if you'll turn there now with me. Something amazing, an amazing uh, a prophecy is spoken by God through Moses. And here's what it says if you go to Deuteronomy 17. By the way, my, my Bible has a subtitle for these few verses I'm about to read that are very critical to where we're going today. And that subtitle says this, Guidelines for a King. And I saw that and I thought about the fact as I read it that in the church today we have something called the Constitution and Bylaws. This church has one. Any nonprofit organization has to have a Constitution and Bylaws. It's the document that says how we are to elect officers and, and conduct the business of the church. It's the guidelines uh, or the rules that we follow to function appropriately. And as a church fellowship, we commit to obeying the Constitution and bylaws and allow it to be our governing authority in alignment with the Word of God. Well, Deuteronomy 17 was established as the guideline, like, like the Constitution and bylaws, so to speak. It's the guidelines for a king. And I want us to read it. Deuteronomy 17. Now, before we do, can I just remind you what we just read that Solomon had done? You got that. Now we're at Deuteronomy 17. You are about to enter the land. The Lord your God is giving you. When you take it over and settle there, you may think, hmm, we should select a king to rule over us like the other nations around, the, around us. Now, this is before they even had kings because kings don't come into the picture until 1 Samuel 8. But God is saying, if this happens, be sure to select as king the man the Lord your God chooses. Who was the first king of Israel? Saul. He was a Benjamite, so they did that. You must appoint a fellow Israelite. He may not be a foreigner. Now stay with me because here's what our investigation shows about Solomon, what may have happened in his journey. Verse 16. Hmm. You looking at what I'm looking at? The king must not build up a large stable of horses for himself. Or send his people to Egypt to buy horses, for the Lord has told you, you must never return to Egypt. Verse 17. The king must not 
take many wives for himself because they will turn his heart away from the Lord. Folks, this is 500-year-old advice at this point. How many know in this room today that it doesn't matter if God said it 2,000 years ago or yesterday, whatever God says is true? No, that wasn't good enough. Whatever God says is true. Come on, church. Now it goes on to say, he must not, the king, accumulate large amounts of wealth in silver and gold for himself. Have you figured out now that Solomon is three for three? And he missed what the rest of this passage, this constitution and bylaws, so to speak, for the king said at verse 18. Solomon missed this. When he sits on the throne as king, he must copy for himself this body of instruction on a scroll in the, pres- in the presence of the, Le- the Levitical priests. He must always keep that copy with him and read it daily as long as he lives. That way he will learn to fear the Lord his God by obeying all the terms of these instructions and decrees. This regular reading will prevent him from becoming proud and acting as if he is above his fellow citizens. It will also prevent him from turning away from these commands in the smallest way. And it will ensure that he and his descendants will reign for many generations in Israel. It will ensure that he and his descendants will reign for many generations in Israel. This is what the Lord is saying through Moses. Don't multiply horses. Because once you do that, you'll start multiplying wives. And once you do that, you'll start multiplying riches. And in the midst of that, guess what? Your heart is going to turn away. Now, I've given that little process my own little title today. I call it the unseemly progression. It takes you from horses to idols. And we must understand that God was giving him a word of protection that would have given him longevity and allow him to finish well. Hear me carefully this morning, church. Truth has no expiration date. Truth has no time limit. The truth of the Bible, whether it was written a thousand years before your time or two thousand years before your time, remains true today and will forevermore be true. It doesn't change with culture. It doesn't change with someone new, someone's new idea. Thank God it doesn't bend to the whim of politicians because we serve a living God who is truth and always speaks the truth. He is the truth. There's no your truth and my truth. There is God's truth and his alone. Can I get a witness to that today? And truth has no expiration date. It's because it's old. Doesn't mean you don't have to obey it. What if I said to you today, you know what? There's this old law called gravity. It is so old-fashioned and outdated. You know how long that law has been around? But if I take you to the top of this building, I put a Christian t-shirt on you. I sing to you the latest praise and worship song. 
as we get ready, as we get you ready to jump off the building. <laughs> and I get out the latest, coolest lights and smoke and stuff so the atmosphere is great. And even if I say, Sir Isaac Newton and his apple, who needs it? What does he know? And I convince you to jump off the building. How many of you know there is an old law that says, if we take your body and get you to jumpeth off the building, <laughs> that your body will splatteth on Beecheth Street, <laughs> and you'll be dead. How many know I'm telling you the truth today? Just because it's an old law doesn't mean it's not true. For some of you gals, it goes like this. He said he loves me. I'm tired of being alone. I'm tired of trying to do this all by myself. Now I know he's not saved. Here come the horses. But he's been coming to church. And I know that once he marries me, he'll see Jesus even more. Giddy up, giddy up, giddy up, giddy up, giddy up, giddy up, giddy up. High hole silver. Dear lady, I don't care if he loves you. I don't care if he's good to your children. I don't care if he has a great J-O-B. It is still S-T-U-P-I-D to marry him. Because you've got to deal with an old verse in 2 Corinthians 6.14 that says, Do not be unequally yoked. Am I telling you the truth today or not? You see, here's what happens. I see it all the time. We somehow convince ourselves that we can violate the Scriptures. We can violate what has been firmly established as a truth because somehow we're the exception. Our case is special. Pastor Dan, if you kind of knew the circumstances... If you kind of knew, kind of, you know, if you knew the whole story, I don't need to know the whole story. I know what the truth of the Word of God says. If you're living in sin, stop it. That's what the Word of the Lord says. Because here's what's happening, and here's what I'm trying to tell you as I talk about the unseemly progression today of, of Solomon. Little disobedience turns into big chaos. We've gone through his progression. Started off with horses. Went to marrying a thousand women who caused his heart to turn away from God. Collecting all of his riches and amassing his wealth. And then he starts building idols to other gods. Little disobedience turns into big chaos. And God will start with a simple thing. And you thinking, well, this is just horses. But it's something bigger that's at stake here. Much, much bigger. There's a verse we have to contend with today, church. It's now in Luke 16. They'll put it up. You don't have to turn there. I've got you flying all over the Bible this morning. Luke 16, verse 10, where he says this. If you are faithful in little things, you will be faithful in large ones. But if you are dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. And if you are untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? And if you are not faithful with other people's things, 
Why should you be trusted with things of your own? When the little things come, just remember, church, those are horses that can lead you to something else. I'm going to tell you, this is a small thing. You may think nothing of it, but it's what happened to me just yesterday as I was finalizing my preparations for today. Yesterday was my daughter's birthday, and it was my job to go by the bakery about 3 o'clock in the afternoon to pick up the birthday cake. So I pulled up to the bakery, and at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, there's really nobody around. And as I got out of my car to go into the bakery, I looked, and in what would be in the next parking place to mine, and about four feet back, there was something caught my attention all swirled around down there, and I went and looked at it, and it was what I would recognize as a very fine pair of earbuds that somebody has dropped. Now, being someone who listens to music, this very nice set of earbuds had an attraction to me, and I could look at that, and my first thought could have been, Jehovah Jireh. Lord, you know my passion for music. Looky right there. Look, it was a God thing. I pulled right up in this place. Look at that. And I looked at it and I thought, hmm. Because, you know, we've talked about temptation before. For temptation to be temptation, it has to have an attraction to you. There is like this custom fit attraction, allurement for you for it to be temptation. Well, there was temptation all right there in the parking place right next to me. And so I have to tell you, as I've had my Jehovah Jireh thoughts and how wonderful this looked like this could have been and was preparing this message, I began to hear, giddy up, giddy up, giddy up, giddy up, giddy up. <laughs> Here come the horses. Here come the horses. And I remembered that wonderful verse that is not in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible will you find any verse that says, finders, keepers, <laughs> losers. Church, Jesus did not say that. No, he didn't. So I reached down and I picked them up. And I examined them and yes, they were wonderful. And so I walked straight into the bakery. I said, someone may come looking for these. I found them in the parking lot. And some, be, some people might say, Dan, what's the big, you know, what's the big deal? The, probably the person doesn't even know where they left them. And, you know, it's just a set of earbuds of nice ones. I mean, who would, who would know? Some may have picked them up and stuck them in their pocket and thought nothing about it. But I'm here to tell you today, this is the principle behind the unseemly progression. If you're unfaithful with the little things, with the $10, $15, those are the horses that take you to the bigger things. The most well-known and dearly beloved psalm, Psalm 23, that you probably memorized as a child, has a part of it that says, Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Well, the rod and the staff is the same thing. It's, it's the same element. It's just a matter of which end of it that you use. I happen to have an illustration here this morning. I got it. It's the same thing. This is the rod. This is the staff. It's not two different things. It's one thing. Now, sheep have the propensity to get into trouble. How many know that's the truth? <laughs> Did I hear someone go bah in the back of the room? 
And they will wander from the fold, typically by eating themselves away. They just eat and eat and they don't look where they're going and suddenly they've wandered off without really knowing it and they can get into trouble. And what the shepherd will do, let's see, I need a volunteer. Josh. <laughs> Come here, my brother. Give Josh a good hand today. Come on. Stand right there. That's fine. Face that way. We got him on his knees, folks. Hallelujah. So, you have no idea what's coming. You can have tomorrow off, okay? <laughs> so here's, here's the way this works. What the shepherd will do will take the rod, this part, when the sheep is, is wandering. And they'll just put a little bit of pressure, like right here. Does that hurt? Not, not yet? I can... Does that hurt? <laughs> kind of like reminds me when you go to the doctor and they poke around. They say, is that tender? Has it ever struck you that's an odd word? Tender means sweet. No, it hurts. <laughs> tender is never the word that I use to describe pain. <laughs> and that's a little pressure that the shepherd will use to kind of say, you know what? You're a little bit off track there. He's not whacking them over the head. He's just putting a little pressure right there on the side. How many of you have ever said anything that you go, I shouldn't have said that? What that is, is that's the shepherd going, be careful. Come on, just be careful. Get right there. Be careful. But let me tell you what happens. Sometimes the sheep, does, they don't obey the prodding on the side. And most of the time, sheep will find themselves then stuck in thorns and brush. And now guess what? They can't get out. They can't get out on their own. And so this side, the rod, doesn't work anymore. So what does the shepherd do? My, my microphone fell off. Come on, give him a good hand. How many know what I'm talking about? You've had to have the great shepherd. You got so far off and you were so stubborn that you couldn't even feel the prodding that he was doing. Say, uh-uh, this way, this way, this way. But we get so in our own thing and we're so convinced that we're right because we're special and our situation is special. And so he has to then use the staff and yank us back. Anybody know what I'm talking about this morning? The problem is this. When he has to use that other end, the fleece, the, the fleece can get ripped the neck can get hurt. And it would have been so much easier if he had obeyed that little pressure on the side. And we find ourselves not even hearing the sound of the horses. Pick up those earbuds, Dan. Put them in your pocket. And now we find ourselves in chaos. It's not just pressure on the side. But God has to drag us back by the neck. That if we would have just obeyed the first time, 
life would have been a lot easier. Listen to me, church, as carefully and lovingly with a pastor's heart as I can say this. The conviction of God is the protection of God. You keep living long enough and you'll know what I'm talking about. The conviction of God is the protection of God. And when you feel that little thing inside of you that says, don't say that, don't go there, don't text him, but he's asking for my number. That doesn't mean it's a God thing because he's asking for your number. That doesn't mean it's the Lord. You want to know how you go from loving God to loving a thousand women and building idols? It's because you bought horses when God's word was speaking to you and you kept buying stuff. And now you're not just buying stuff, you're multiplying stuff. And you've allowed yourself to get in a situation where you followed the unseemly progression. Just like Solomon. It all started because there was a violation of the word of God that you knew. Solomon knew what the word of God was. He knew exactly what it was, no matter how old it was. Why did he know it? Because as a king, he had to write it down. We read it this morning. Church, let's learn from this today. Let's make a determination to finish well. I feel the nudge right here. Maybe, what is that nudge? Maybe it's a questionable relationship that you've gotten yourself involved in. I feel it. Oh, wow. Maybe it's a financial deal that you need to really scrutinize and examine if it's godly and righteous. It could be a website you shouldn't be frequenting or someplace that you're going that you shouldn't be going. Maybe God's dealing with you about your disobedience and your lack of tithing. Maybe that nudge is there. But if you want to finish well, and thank God within this fellowship we have examples of people who are finishing well. And you don't want God to have to get the other end of the staff to drag you out of your mess. Then you will listen to the word of the Lord. I'm going to ask everyone to remain seated for the just next five minutes as I bring this to a close. I'm aware of the time. Pastor Brent, why don't you come on come to the keyboard. Because I have to, if I'm going to talk about the unseemly progression, I have to talk about the better alternative. I find myself often in the midst of conflict resolution. They didn't tell me that part when I signed on to be your pastor, that I would be doing that on a regular basis. Brother against brother, sister against sister, issues within the church, issues outside of the church that may have impact upon the church, maybe yes, maybe no. By the time it gets to me, tensions are high, emotions can be out of control. It's not unusual for someone in the midst of a conflict who's so, they're so You know, their emotions are so out of control, they might come and say, Pastor, I had to step out of the kingdom for just a few minutes yesterday. And I know what they meant by that. One of the mechanisms that I try to employ when I'm dealing with resolving conflict, resolving conflict, in fact, I have taught this very idea in music conferences all over the country. I used to do that when I was a music pastor. I'm going to be sharing some of these ideas with the BSM students in a few weeks. One of the things I try to do is to get all the parties involved to take a step back and take a breath and to say something like this. It doesn't have to play out this way. It doesn't have to happen the way on the track that it's, that it's headed in. Our emotions are causing all of us to act in ways that we won't be proud of later. We will wish later that we had 
gone a different way. That we have, There's another way for this to play out. We won't be proud of this, particularly when it blows up. There is a, there's a better way this can play out. There is a, a redemptive way this can play out. I have always believed in the principle that in most things, there's more than one right way. There's several ways this can go. Some of them are wrong ways. But what I'm always looking for, because I love the redemptive grace of Jesus. I don't enjoy conflict any more than anybody else does. But I'm willing to go the distance. I'm willing to go through the mud to get there because of the joy of the possibility of experiencing the redemptive grace of Jesus on the other side. Because I believe in the redemptive grace of Jesus. And that's why if you're involved in some sort of a situation that's got all this tension built up in it, I want you to know that you can step back and say, there's a better way that this can play out. I certainly don't have all the answers. Most of the time, I don't even understand the question. And what I'm telling you, church, I have to tell myself all of the time. But I have learned the value of looking for the better way. Now, this morning, I presented to you the unseemly progression of Solomon. Though he knew better, though he knew full well the word of the Lord, we see his unseemly progression where he went from loving the Lord to buying horses, though he knew not to, to marrying a thousand women, though he knew not to, those women turning his heart away from the Lord, to acquiring wealth, though he knew not to, to building idols to other gods in Jerusalem. And I want to propose to you a better progression. In fact, I'm not always really good at giving messages a title occasionally. There's one comes to my mind. I'm calling this today a better progression. And I propose this better progression as I bring this to a close. Thank you for your patience. By looking at a couple of verses from the psalmist David where he said this in Psalm 40. You take no delight, verse 6 says, in sacrifices or offerings. And this is an interesting phrase. Now that you have made me listen, I finally understand. You don't require burnt offerings or sin offerings. Then I said, look, I have come, as is written about me in the scriptures. I take joy in doing your will, my God, for your instructions are written on my heart. The psalmist is entirely occupied with what God wants. In fact, that little insertion of that phrase I, I referenced there for a second. Now that you have made me listen, we believe in biblical scholars believe that it's a reference to the mosaic practice of piercing the ear of the slave who has grown to love his master so much that he cannot abide serving any other. Giving indication that as soon as he has truly learned the meaning of his ears, he found the right use of his tongue. The better progression. When I became pastor of this fellowship just over four years ago, I knew that given the nature of my personality and just the rhythm of my own leadership style, some things would be changing. Des, Pastor Des and I freely discussed this in the early days of transition. We would talk about it. I said, Des, you know, I, I probably do things different. He said, I know. He knew that some things would be different and that was okay. Pastor Des pastored this fellowship according to the magnificent grace that God had given him and with the rhythms of his own leadership. 
And therefore, he was more than willing to grant that same privilege to me, which is another indication of what an absolutely big man he is. Daniel, you'll do it differently. Those of you who know anything about how church transitions go, you know this has been an extremely rare, extremely rare situation. God has graced us unbelievably. But there were some policies and procedures, methods, simple ways of doing things that I wanted to bring into alignment with my own way of doing things. Any leader understands what I'm talking about. But I don't know if you know this, but change doesn't always come easily. Particularly when some things have been taking place for decades. And so I began to see a progression in my mind of hopefully trying to cause some things to go a certain way. And it's four things. And I'm going to propose to you today that this is a better progression than the progression, the unseemly progression that we see in Solomon. When I'm trying to implement something new or a new idea, it starts with getting those who are involved to acknowledge it. Just acknowledgement. That means they see it. Yeah, okay, may not like it, may not agree with it, may not, you know, they may have all kinds of questions about it, may not like it at all, but at least they know that it's a direction that we're wanting, in which we are wanting to go. That's like the first step for me. Next is getting those who are involved to implement the new direction, implementation. Now here's what can be certainly said. I don't necessarily expect them yet to like it if they are not for it, but they're at least implementing it. They're doing what they've been asked to do and they're going with you. You know, I don't like it, but I'm gonna do it. They're implementing, they've gone from just simply acknowledging it to implementing it. Third step is this. Hopefully that they're going to come to the place of embracing the, the new idea and accepting it. Embracing the idea means they have shifted now from just saying, I see it and I acknowledge it. And now they've gone on past, they've taken the step of implementation. I'm implementing it. I'm doing it, Dan. Hopefully they're going to get to the next step of saying at some point, you know what? This might, this could maybe work. And they begin to embrace it. And they begin to accept it. And they begin to see the positive possibilities of what can happen with it. They have moved in all, they're now at step number three. But ultimately, just like the psalmist said, there's a step number four. And I'm not going to tell you we always get there. But this is such a powerful statement to me. And that is this. They move from acknowledgement to implementation to embrace, accept. And finally, at some point, and I have seen this happen, it is written on the walls of their heart. They have taken ownership of the idea and they've seen what can happen and they've seen the positive nature of it all. It doesn't always happen, but that's, those are the goals that we're working for. And as I think about that, and I think about what went wrong with Solomon, how he got so derailed by all of these distractions and literal disobedience in the process, I began to ask myself, Dan, what is written on the walls of your heart? What's written on the walls? What is so ingrained? What is so much a part of your DNA that you absolutely take total ownership 
of that commitment to Christ. I want you to bow your heads just for a second because I'm going to challenge you. We're going to bring the service to a close. But I want to challenge you with the same question that I challenged myself. If you're in a position to really know your heart, and of course we know what the Bible says about our hearts, none of us can know it. What is written on the walls of your heart? What is so completely ingrained there? And then does it line up with the word of the Lord? And is it possible that you have allowed anything to slip in that has distracted you from staying true to your commitment to finishing well. When we acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, and then we begin to implement His Word into our lives, and then we begin to embrace and accept His life in us as we, as we interface with other people, as we become integrated into the kingdom of God and part of the church, thriving as a healthy, growing member of the church of Jesus. And then we reach the point that, you know what? Nothing can now take that away from me. Nothing can change it because it is written on the walls of my heart. No one can take that away from me. That is where we want to be in our commitment to the Lord Jesus. Let's stand together, church.